What is up, everybody? We are back today with another beautiful episode of the Fetch It podcast with a absolute tax ninja, Ryan. So Ryan helped us, you know, work through some of our own problems that Yoni and I are facing because we're still kind of earlier on in our investing, trying to figure out what the heck we're supposed to do in regards to tax structuring and some stuff that I didn't actually expect us to talk about where he was talking about, um, you know, thinking more about your debt to income ratio and how like refinancing properties and stuff like that can make a huge difference on your portfolio. So Yoni, what was your favorite part about the podcast today? I think I already know, actually. (laughs) He's an investor. He is a CPA. He thinks like an investor and like a CPA. He has all kinds of ways to uh, to um, avoid, I would say, now I would call it tax strategies. So you can write, do write-offs on all kinds of ways. Guys doing developments, RV deals. So he's he has the hat of an investor and the hat of a CPA. So this is tax, this is wealth accumulation and wealth um, and, and, and preservation. Wealth, wealth preservation. So if you're in, if you don't know a lot about wealth preservation, maybe you don't think it's important because you're still trying to accumulate wealth. Well, I think you'll find out this is important because this is a, a knowledge bomb. Absolutely. And the guy's got a uh, a group, a Facebook group that I will be joining. And he's also got a podcast and some other ways that you can get in contact with him with his group for uh, to learn like a CPA. And so uh, I think this is a really, really valuable episode for a lot of people. A lot of people don't like to listen or learn about taxes. But what I, everything that I always hear from the, you know, the biggest investors that I talk to, they're like, taxes is my favorite thing to talk about, because it's such a huge, huge lever that people can pull that people don't think about. So uh, I think people are going to get a lot of value out of this. This and uh, I, without further ado, let's get Ryan in. Let's get it. What is up, everybody? We are here today for another episode of the Fetch It podcast. We have a very special guest, Ryan Bakey, on who is a certified public accountant, and he is going to school us today on some tax strategies and specifically related to short-term rentals. So, Ryan, um, can you give us a short little intro, who you are, how you got started, and uh, then we'll go from there? Yeah, my name is Ryan. I have an accounting and finance degree, double major in accounting and finance. I had a small real estate background when I was in college because one of my good professors was kind of like ex Wall Street, uh, did a lot of commercial real estate in uh, New York and stuff. So I had a little bit of real estate background, but not much. And I went to work right away for a firm called Deloitte Consulting. And so we did consulting for large uh, hedge funds, syndications, real estate syndications and investment banks. And it was there where I kind of learned that I was helping people who are already rich and wealthy become even more rich and wealthy. And I decided that I wanted to help not not the everyday person become rich, but the person in their family that wanted to change their family tree, because there's one person in every single family that wants to change their family tree. And I wanted to find that person specifically in the real estate niche and and help that person. So I started my CPA firm uh, focused on tax on real rental real estate. So tax strategies for real estate investors. And, you know, fast forward today, over 200 clients that we work with on a you know quarterly basis at times. I've done multiple conferences, put on 850 person conferences. We're doing another conference next month, 1100, uh, 1100 person conference in Nashville. I'll be speaking at. So we really love the journey. Now I'm kind of getting into the, Hey, how do I kind of help everybody? And so now I've developed, you know, products and content podcasts. I have a Facebook group tax strategies for real estate investors. Uh, We have over 5,000 people in there and kind of developed a, a product to help everybody. So, and that's a big thing. Thing I want people to take away is no matter where you're at as an investor, you can save money on taxes. And I can guarantee that I could look into your portfolio and find savings somewhere. 
That's Maybe. fantastic, man. Yeah, because I mean, I, I'll be honest. I'm, I'm like, uh, what I assume most people are like. And whenever you start thinking about taxes, it's just like, oh man, like you just, it's yeah. like a, a, a thorn in your side, and you just don't even want to have to think about it or deal with it. And uh, so I've been fortunate enough. I've had a, a really good CPA the last couple of years that's real estate related, and so she's she's done a really good job with me. But, um, yeah, so real estate, you know, you were saying it's good for, you know, like the beginners. And so that was one of my first questions was like somebody who's just starting out. Cause I think a lot of the the people that are coming to fetch it, they may have a couple of properties or they may just be starting out a total newbie. So somebody that's just starting out, what types of things should they be doing to make sure that they're setting themselves up for success? Because I know whenever I started, I bought my first, you know, investment property in my personal name. I had all my, you know, bank accounts mingled together. It was a total mess. And so what kind of things could a newbie investor do to make sure that they're setting themselves up for success from a, a tax perspective? Yeah. One of the, one of the things is just documenting all your expenses. So it's really hard if you have all your rental expenses coming out of your personal checking account to be able to notify, Hey, this is, this is for home Depot for the rental property or, you know, if everything's coming out of your personal account, it makes it really hard for you to distinguish what is personal and what's rental. And so that's why we always recommend, even if you don't have an LLC set up, to just set up a separate checking account. Uh, doesn't have to be a new bank account, but a separate checking account for your rental property. You'll get a credit card for that checking account and you could just swipe everything for that rental property. So that's the first thing. I think a lot of people just don't uh, miss, don't get all their expenses. Like I'll see somebody's you know rental report and I say, well, you're missing insurance, you're missing interest, you're missing taxes. You know, what about cleaning fees, right? That's also another thing that I think people miss a lot. And so because I have that experience, I can look at somebody's profit and loss and Within 10 seconds, I know if they're missing something or, you know, something just looks out of place, right? If you're, if your gross rents are hundred K, but your cleaning fees are only listed at $2,000, I know something's wrong there. Typically, you know, I know what, I know what it costs to run these things and, you know, cleaning fees are typically a different percentage. And so just having that separate checking account to have all your expenses is a start. But then I would say there's also the exploration of understanding, well, now that you have a rental property, you have a business. And as a business owner, you're able to deduct certain things that you weren't otherwise able to as a W-2 employee, right? Some things like your, your Wi-Fi, your internet, your data, your phone, all these things that you use for your rental properties, you know, that you're also using on a personal level. Well, now some of those personal expenses can be deductible now under your business. So that's in a, 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 so I want to just ask something from my perspective, because I'm going to assume that some of the listeners are uh, where I'm at. I'm in a um, accumulate wealth mode. Tax write-offs feel like a um, maintain wealth strategy. So when you're grinding to accumulate wealth, you are have huge blind spots to uh, these things that you're talking about, separate checking account, and as a business owner, sort of having these write-offs. What's one thing that um, our listeners can do obviously setting up that account being one of them, what's one expense that you think is very common that you see that people don't don't think is a write-off or could write off right away and you tell them that's the first thing you got to do? Yeah, uh, your closing statement. So when you go to closing table, you're paying some you know taxes, insurance, interest, closing costs, loan costs. You're paying a bunch of stuff that I never see show up in people's profit and loss because people think, oh, it's just my revenues and my expenses. But if I have to prepay for taxes, and it, you know, it depends on what state you're in. In Florida, they have like a lot of tax stamps that typically the buyer has to pay. All these things that show up on the closing disclosure, like if you don't know that and you're not working with like a real estate savvy accountant, or if you're just DIYing your own return, there's zero chance you're picking those costs up. And then sometimes, you know, closing costs can be you know tens of thousands of dollars sometimes. 
Very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. The, yeah, so uh, I was going to say, he, he mentioned a point though is, you know, and that's something I was just on another podcast with uh, Bill Faith from Short-Term Rental Wealth. And what I, because what I do see in this industry is you'll get, let's say a realtor who's making, you know, just broke six figures and they bought a, they bought a brand new car for their business thinking, well, I want to have write-offs. I want to have deductions. I don't want to pay Uncle Sam as much money. Well, in the wealth accumulation phase, like when you're trying to get business rapport with banks and lenders and, and, and other people, you may not want to write off everything under the sun because if you're self-employed, what do you need? Typically, you need two years of tax returns to show your business income for, for banking purposes. So what I tell people is you just have to know where you're at in, in that situation where if you're just getting started, you know, you're zero to three properties and you're trying to build up you know, your income and your self-employed business, you may not want to write off everything under the sun because the bank is not going to let you add those back. But there's certain expenses that I talk about a lot of my podcasts and stuff like your, you know, most of your PITI and this thing called depreciation that you're actually able to add back to your income, you know, retirement accounts, you can add back certain things you're able to add back. So you just have to be smart with what you take as a deduction, because if you write off everything or you don't report all your cash, you're not going to get loans from the bank versus if I'm somebody like, you know, myself, or it's like, all right, I'm in a 40% tax bracket, well-established investor. I have the rapport with the banks already. I'm trying to expense everything under the sun because I know I'll be able to qualify for loans anyway, regardless of if I show, you know, 30% less taxable income than I should, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, kind of staying on the, on the thread of, uh, newbies. So a lot of people, whenever they're first starting out, um, they get into like rental arbitrage. And so I know that, you know, depreciation, you know, that's the golden nugget that comes with, you know, owning rental properties. And obviously you don't get that with rental arbitrage. So a lot of people that are getting into the game and, you know, they're getting in with uh, a rental arbitrage type of property. What are some things that people can do to take advantage of tax strategies with the arbitrage side of things? Because they don't get that, you know, big depreciation. Yeah. So with arbitrage, you know, it's basically leasing and then subleasing out your property. But one thing that's really interesting about arbitrage that a lot of people don't know is arbitrage is actually a passive activity, even though you don't get the depreciation from it, which means you can use, you can use depreciation from properties that you do own to offset your arbitrage income. So if I have a, you know, let's say I have a portfolio of arbitrage units that's throwing off a quarter million dollars of income to me, as long as I have a quarter million dollars of depreciation from the real estate that I own, I can offset my arbitrage income with the depreciation losses. I see you smiling. Really? Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. That's wild. I, I yeah. have no I, idea. Now, I now, idea. now co-hosting because co-hosting is actually a service. Everybody knows what co-hosting is. Yeah. yeah. Cause co-hosting is a service business. You're providing a service to somebody. You're managing it. That is not passive. That's active, but arbitrage, is just the leasing and then the subleasing of real estate. So it's wow. technically passive activity. Wow. So even even if it's less than like 28 days, even if it's a short-term rental to where it's yeah. like, you know, every two, three days, somebody's in and out of there. That's fascinating. I did not know that. Also, just drilling deeper on active versus passive income for people like me that know nothing about tax strategies because I admittedly, embarrassingly, no, close to nothing. So just like j <laughs> double hone in on that. Could you, could you please like, and how arbitrage relates to that? Yeah. So um, every single dollar that you make, it gets lumped into two different buckets. So you either have what's called a non, a non-passive bucket, which is going to be anything from your W2 income, 1099, gambling income, retirement income, all these things that's considered non-passive. And then there's going to be co-hosting also goes in there. 
there's going to be a bucket of income that's considered passive income, which is generally all rental real estate. So if you're doing long-term rentals, mid-term rentals, short-term rentals, if you're renting them, if you own them and rent them out, it's going to be considered passive, but also that arbitrage, uh, the Airbnb rental arbitrage is also considered that passive uh, bucket. Very interesting. Okay. And, and, and the biggest, on... the biggest key difference is that income that's considered passive is not subject to what's called social security and Medicare taxes. So as us, as W2 employees, if you, um, I, I work for myself now, but I take a W2 for my business. If I look at my pay stub, there's a line that says social security. There's a line that says Medicare taxes. These are like working man or woman taxes that you pay because you're, you show up to work. But when you have passive income through real estate, one of the things you don't have to do is pay these social security Medicare taxes, which can be seven or 15% savings based on if you're a W2 employee or a business owner. So right away, all, all income that I make in real estate is taxed a lot less than it is if I was to show up to work and make it. Interesting. So is there ever yes. a time um, other than the co-hosting? Because I, I I heard Matt Bontrager speak at a um, at HostCon, and I thought that there was another another situation to where um, income would be considered um, not passive; it would be active income within within the short term rental world. Am I am I incorrect on that? Or yeah, so that so we don't really see that too much, and the reason why is so. What's that's referred to is if you provide substantial services to your guests. That's what it so was. So that's yeah. if you like if you cook for them while they're staying there, or you're cleaning for them. Um, if you're doing these types of activities while the guest is staying there, then it actually moves from the passive to the non-passive bucket, okay. which means it's generating self-employment taxes. And the reason why I don't deal with this too much is because a lot of my clients don't offer those services to guests because it would just kill cash flow. Um, but, mm -hmm. you know, I, I do have a client that actually owns, uh, they own a, they actually own a reptile museum in a, in a big city and they own a bunch of houses around the reptile museum. And what they do is they actually have reptile, you know, they have snakes and stuff in the houses in boxes. What? Oh my god! They, they, they bring, they bring. So get this. So they bring like trainers and stuff to come to the house with the families and like let out the snakes and like let the kids play with the snakes inside <laughs> the house. And so that we've we've chalked that up to substantial services, but um, and they have a great gig going on. So they either have so people come to book their 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 reptile museum. They get a link saying, "Hey, did you did you um, do you already have a place to stay? If not, come check out our house that has all these cool snakes. Or if they come book the house, they're like, "Hey, are you did you are you also going to check out the museum? If not, here's a coupon code discount, whatever." That's brilliant. I'm sure their insurance policy is probably pretty good. You know, you got people playing yeah. snakes. <laughs> I I would wild. love to see it. I think it's it it's really interesting. Yeah, you, you can literally get an insurance on anything. So. You know, I dealt with somebody who uh, was a, was a, like a professional drummer and his hands are literally insured. So if, if, his, if he can't, like, let's say he breaks his wrist and he's not able to perform anymore, he's like permanently disabled. Like he gets like a $5 million payout because that's what his uh, drumming skills are worth. That's where his livelihood comes from. That's wild. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. It, it, would that, that would apply to uh, um, a fighter as well? Like I, a, I would assume so. Uh, yeah, I haven't heard of that assume. though. Yeah. Yeah. I would assume. Yeah. So for somebody that's, um, 
uh, unorganized such as me, what, what's a good way, because as of right now, I'm still just using Excel spreadsheets. So I have an Excel spreadsheet for each one of my properties. Sorry. I'm just kind of like, you know, selfishly using you right now, but I'm sure it'll probably uh, resonate with a lot of the listeners. So I've got an Excel spreadsheet for each one of my properties. I've got, you know, my PITI, my utilities, my cleaning fees and stuff like that, all my expenses. Then I got my gross income Then I've got my net at the bottom. And so that's, I, in my opinion, I'm trying to keep it as organized as I possibly can, but but um, I know that I hear a lot from people. They're like, yeah, spreadsheets, you know, they work. But sh- what what types of software, you know, like the QuickBooks and Stessas and things like that of the world, which ones do you see? Like if somebody wanted to say, I'm starting from zero and I want to have 20 short-term rentals in the next three years, what type of software could they use to help build with them and keep everything organized? Yeah, if you're going to go for 20, definitely QuickBooks online uh, because you can have each property as its own class. And you can keep them all in-house under that QuickBooks online. You could have 20 different rentals. And, and what you would want to do is, you know, link a different credit card for each rental property. So that way, if you have expenses, you know that they're being paid with those different accounts and they're automatically linked. If you try to run 20 different rentals under one spreadsheet, it's going to be a nightmare because you're going to have to go in and like manually plug in all your income and your expenses and stuff. Mm-hmm. You get it set up to something like QuickBooks or even like a Stessa where it's automated. Although I think Stessa, after a certain amount of properties, you don't get it for free anymore. Mm. But um, you you set up QuickBooks and it automates everything for you if you put the legwork into doing it. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's been one of my big goals. Once uh, uh, once I get settled back into Fort Wayne, we're down in Florida right now. It's like I need to like get everything a little bit more organized. Get you know separate accounts for each one of the properties. So yeah, this is good. Uh, a good little nudge in the right direction. Um, Yoni, got anything? Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the investment side of your life. So obviously, like the the audience has gotten a little bit of a glimpse into your, I would say, very long term thinking mind. You're thinking about the the from a CPA perspective. You're, you mentioned retirement accounts. You mentioned checking accounts today. So you're thinking not only how they can get set up right now, but how they'll be, how they will be financially advantaged in the age in their 60s and their 70s and god willing their 80s i thought that was really cool um what i'd like to know is back to the airbnb investment side um tell us a little bit about your personal investments tell us a little bit about what you're working on there um we can take this whichever whichever avenue you would like to know we'd love to know what your personal investment strategy is yeah uh let me touch one thing on what you just mentioned so a lot of times people are very short-minded of just, hey, I need to get this next deal done or I need to close on this deal. Well, you have to have a long-term thinking pattern when you're in this real estate game because the next move that you do, it is so important that you set yourself up for success after. If I'm working at W-2, let's say I have a primary mortgage and then I buy a big secondary home loan, well, did I just kill my DTI and now I can't borrow any more property and now I have to do DSCR or bank statement loans, right? You're always trying to think like one step ahead as an investor. And the way the the best metaphor I have for that is I shoot a lot of pool at like bars and stuff. And I'm never focused on the the shot that I'm making right now. I'm more worried about where my cue ball is going to end up after I make that shot. Right. And so as an investor, it's like, yeah, I'll land this one deal. But what does that do to my, you know, my debt profile? What does that do to my balance sheet, my net worth statement, my liquidity statements? Like, how does that set me up for that next goal? And that's what I try to encourage a lot of my clients and just like friends and investors to look at is it's like, yeah, you can strike that deal and that's awesome. But how is it setting you up for future things? So, you know, and I'll go into my personal investments now where it's, so I'm doing uh, one ground up construction, 
3.8 million dollar total acquisition cost with with some partners right well i personally guarantee some of that debt so now that debt is getting on my net worth statement on my balance sheet right what does that do to my balance sheet i have to think about i'm also doing a 2.5 million dollar purchase of an rv park in colorado i'm personally guaranteeing that debt too so what does that what does that do to my my profile right and then now moving on so like the next thing that i have uh, coming up in the pipeline is a $8 million purchase in uh, San Marcos, Texas. It's like, what does that do to my, what does that do to my net worth and my liquidity statement? So all these different types of things, like I'm thinking it's almost like Messi, you know, like Lionel Messi, when he plays soccer, he's not looking at the next pass. He's already like four or five passes ahead of what's going on. And so, yeah, I, as far as personal investments, like I have my, you know, CPA firm, that's my bread and butter business. I've spun that off into like a, a guest speaking and events and trainings and courses. And then as far as personal investments go, I have um, a multifamily buildings in Chicago, which I'm actually sitting in one right now. This is my, this is my first rental property. It was a house hack duplex. So I have a tenant living upstairs. And so this is my first rental property. And so, you know, I bought this one a few years ago, fast forward to today. Now I have, you know, I have another one, uh, another one here, same town, one in Ohio, one in Maryland. Then I have the two big projects, uh, one in Branson, Missouri, 3.8 million, one in, uh, Colorado, 2.5 million, and then working on one in Texas, uh, $8 million purchase price. So you just said a lot of things. I, as you were talking, <laughs> my brain was like, was firing off like in a million directions because um, first of all, the multifamily thing, very impressive. The land development, very, all of it is very impressive. Trying to relate this back to me. I'm actually working on a, uh, I would call it a, a 21 acre a frame i'm building a bunch of a frame cabins um that's where i where i really learned a lot about the airbnb business and the smoky mountains are there tax advantages to new development that i don't know about uh yes absolutely so let me give you an example um so when you when we talk about depreciation and that it's something that i'd love to get into is uh the depreciation which is the tax benefits that you get from owning real estate they're based on the building value so if you buy a building, you know, some of the value of that is not just in the building itself, but it's also the land. So uh, states like California, Florida, the, the land is worth so much of that property that you don't get as much tax benefits from it. So I'll give you an example. Like you could buy you could buy a $600,000 cabin in the Smoky Mountains. You could also buy a million dollar property in Gulf Shores, Alabama and get the same tax benefits because the land in Alabama is worth the land on the ocean is worth so much more than the land in the mountains. And so you could have like literally double the purchase price, but the same tax benefits, depending on where you buy. And, and that's because, again, land doesn't depreciate. Well, if you do improvements and build outs on land, what are called land improvements. So these are typically anything that has like a 20 year useful life or less. So let me give you an example. RVs, clamping tents, you know, tiny homes, things that do not have a building class life can be immediately depreciated in the first year that you place them in a service. So best used by an example, right? You know, let's say uh, on this on this project in Texas, uh, it's a eight million dollar. Let's say it's eight million dollar total development. Well, if we're doing normal depreciation, we're going to take we're typically going to take the eight million dollars, subtract out the land. Let's say the land's worth three million bucks. We have five million dollars worth of building. Multiply that by about twenty percent is what you'll get in depreciation. So we should get about a million dollars worth of tax benefits from that project. But because the land of the five million dollar bill of the sorry of the eight million dollar purchase price, 
3 million is land, 5 million is all these RVs, tents and stuff. That $5 million, most of that can be immediately written off in the first year because they're land improvements, they're not building. And so in that scenario, you're 5Xing the amount of tax benefits that you're getting because of what's on the land, what's sitting on the land or what are called land improvements. And so they're immediately able to be written off in the first year rather than having to be depreciated over the life of the uh, building asset. So then uh, my question always is whenever I see people talking about like these big bonus depreciations and then, you know, like the, taking all that, you know, like, you know, $5 million or $3 million of uh, depreciation in the first year, like somebody like me that doesn't need to have like that amount of depreciation because I'm not making that or that amount of income. Like how does that like by taking that big depreciation, quote unquote loss, like how does that help somebody if they don't, if they're not generating a ton of revenue, uh, um, you know, already? Yeah. So, uh, you know, de depending on what type of revenue sources you're talking about, because I might just be getting started in real estate, but I might have a high W-2 income, right? So a lot of our clients are like doctors, uh, dentists, like very high W-2 income folk that buy short-term rentals. And, uh, you know, I have a podcast on this. I do trainings on this. Well, in most cases, you're actually able to take the losses on your short-term rentals against your doctor's salary, right? So it depends on what your profile is, but if you have high W-2 income, you're going to be able to benefit from those uh, depreciation losses because you're going to be able to use those against your income. But if you're like, let's say you're lower income, you're doing uh, long-term rentals. So you may not be able to take the depreciation against your income because you're not what's called a real estate professional. Uh, you know, it's not, it may not benefit you in the current year. So then you have to look at kind of, well, does it benefit you at all? Well, you know, what if you're selling, a, if I'm, if I know I'm going to sell a property next year, well, what I might want to do is bank a bunch of losses. So that way, the depreciation losses, when I carry them forward, they can be used to offset future gains. So I see this a lot with clients where they'll be in multifamily, like long-term rentals, multifamily units, and they'll get into short-term rentals. Well, if they have gains from, let's say they have um, gains on the long-term rentals that they sell, they can use losses that are generated on the short-term rentals to offset those gains. So a long-winded answer for basically saying it, it just depends on your situation and, and where do you see yourself not only this year, but I would say two, three years out. Very interesting. Yeah. Cause I, I, uh, it seemed like you were kind of speaking directly to me cause I've got some investors who are physicians that I, I worked in healthcare in my previous life and, uh, they're looking to invest and we're looking to do some sort of like, uh, you know, developments in like Blue Ridge mountain area. And so the fact that they would be able to, if we would partner from what I'm understanding, at least I'm just kind of working through it. Um, if we would purchase something like that and we would have, you know, glamping tents and RV spots and stuff like that, they would be able to actually take, if we would take that depreciation right from, you know, the get-go, they would be able to depreciate that against their W-2, which is fantastic because, you know, they're obviously taxed at Maybe. a very high rate. Is that correct? Okay. Okay. Please. Yeah. Yeah. So you, so in order to take short-term rental losses against your W-2, you have to be managing the property yourself. Okay. So if you, if you were the GP, let's say, and you were managing the asset, your, your investors wouldn't be able to take the losses because they're not managing the property. Um, but they still can generate the losses in your fund and use the losses to offset any other passive income, right? But they're not going to be able to take the losses to offset their W-2 salary unless they're the one that's actually self-managing the property. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. I, explain that. Sense. I have I, I have dozens of hours of content just on that concept alone. Love it. I'll definitely be looking into it because that's going to apply. Um, so the RV park idea, what what's uh, is that going to be short-term? And you said that one's out in Colorado, correct? That was in Colorado and I do glamping in Missouri. 
Gotcha. Okay. And so um, you were saying tax advantages for that is that you can, you know, depreciate that right from the get go. Um, So as far, do you have any sort you said you have that apartment building you're in right now, what kind of long-term rental, uh, just in case there's other long-term rental people that are listening right now, what are some uh, advantages that they should be taking or what are things that they should be looking for as far as long-term for long-term rentals, like tax advantages? Yeah. So for long-term rentals, like generally speaking, especially in the Midwest, they don't, um, they, they cash flow well, but they actually show losses because of depreciation. So typically an average long-term rental in the Midwest, you know, d- depending on, depending on your interest rate, they'll normally show a tax, they'll, they'll be cash flow positive, but they'll show tax losses for at least the first five to seven years. And so if you're dealing with long-term rentals and your, and your W2 income is under 150 grand, you're going to be able to take that long-term rental loss. Let's say you have a five, $6,000 loss every year against your W-2 income. Well, if I'm in a, let's say a, you know, let's say I'm in a 20% tax bracket and I have a $6,000 loss. Well, I'm able to save 1200 bucks on taxes. Like, Interesting. Okay. Okay. So um, you, I mean, obviously you're getting into some, you know, higher caliber properties. And so somebody that, um, you know, they're going to go out and they're actually going to purchase a property. They're not going to arbitrage or anything like that. And they've got, you know, 50 grand that they're going to put into something, whether they're going to do a 10% down vacation home loan, or they're going to put, you know, 20% down uh, with that 50 grand. What types of properties do you typically like to see? Do you like new builds? Do you like purchasing a property? Do you like to see somebody doing, you know, like trying to do like a burster as uh, Rob has, uh, Rob Abasolo's kind of coined where it's a, a burr strategy where then you turn it into a short-term rental? Like, is there tax advantages to uh, each of the different types? Um, yeah. So you're, you're asking what I like or what do I like to see investors do or a little bit of everything? A little bit of both. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, I think I, I I think it would be important to start with what you like because you're an investor with with the, trained as a CPA, so that 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 probably is the correct way for all the investors that listen to think. So mm-hmm. rather, so maybe start from wearing the wearing the Ryan hat, and then people can copy you. Yeah. So what I like to do is take advantage of the the tax code of course and like one of the things of the tax code is they they talk about how loans are not taxable events right so if i buy something at a substantial discount or if i improve something heavily and i take a loan out against it well that's not a taxable transaction so anytime i'm able to do that i absolutely love that concept of being able to get your money out of the property but it, i guess it would also you know for short term rentals generally if you're dealing with short term rentals you know, you don't really want to go through the hassle of having to do a gut rehab or completely renovate everything. And you're also probably not going to want to buy older style properties just because there's going to be more wear and tear. So if you have, if you have like wear and tear on a long-term rental unit, you get it fixed and then you get a tenant in there. When you have shit that's constantly going wrong on short-term rentals, it's like, oh, do I have to cancel the next guest? Because I, I have this, you know, my faucet uh, was leaking again, or do I, if you have deferred maintenance on short-term rentals, it is not going to work whatsoever because you're going to miss bookings. Your guests are going to have bad experiences because shit's going to be always be wrong. And so depending on like the asset class that you're in depends on your strategy. So I would never, I would never buy like old SDRs, even if I was to gut rehab and model everything out, because there's still going to be some kind of problems wrong with them. You know, as far as, yeah. So I love the bird method idea and Really, the the idea behind scaling is just understanding that 
there's equal amount, like once you have it figured out, there's equal amount of time that it takes to buy a million dollar property as there is a $500,000 property. Yes. And so there's a, there's a fixed amount of time or cost of my time that goes into a deal negotiations, lenders, you know, getting pre-approval, all that stuff. Whereas once you have it figured out, you're able to scale, uh, scale bigger, right. And, and kind of put pieces together knowing that, Hey, it's, it's going to be a similar amount of time. Uh, that's awesome. Okay. So I have a weird question. Okay. So, um, I wish I was further along and had more developments cause I would have a lot more, um, reference experience types of questions to ask you about mm -hmm. tax avoidance. But, um, at our Shabbat, uh, uh, dinner table the other week, um, all my uh, Jewish relatives uh, came around and we were talking about tax, random tax write-offs um, that we thought were interesting. And my, my, my mother and father were going off a mile a minute about how the Kardashians bought a church and they donate to the <laughs> church that they bought to, to accumulate huge, I'd call it tax write-off benefits. So, for, so I thought that that was interesting. And I was saying what going into this episode, I was thinking to myself, what is something random that people don't know about that they can do to 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 um, get a tax advantage? I have a, I have a buddy of mine who I'm planning on introducing you to that has uh, land developments all over the country. His name is Derek Greenbaum. Shout out to Derek. He bought a, a dinosaur egg or something like that because it had uh, like some tax. I he reads tax books like this big. I, I don't know anyone else. He, he won't read any of other books. He only reads tax books. He's like the king. I got introduced to him. So basically to boil it down, my question is what is something somebody might do that they may not know that's totally random in their life that if they maybe purchased it, they could do a write-off. Maybe it's charity, maybe something with their car. It's definitely not a church, but uh, what do you think about that? Yeah. So what I have for you is not a write-off, but it's a tax-free wealth gain. So any property that you have that you live in as your primary residence for at least two years, you're able to sell it and all the gains are going to be tax-free. If you're single, it's up to 250K. If you're married, it's up to 500,000 bucks. So if I bought something for 300 grand and now it's worth 800,000, if I'm married, I can take that all tax-free as long as I live in there for two years. So you combine that that concept with something like a fix and flip, right? You go and find a, you know, go find a property on a block where all the houses are worth 300 grand. You find that thing for 150, 160, you put a bunch of work into it. You live in it as your primary residence. You know, next thing you know, that thing's worth 350, 400. You can sell that thing completely tax-free as long as you live in it for at least two years. And so, you know, I have friends that just snowball that, 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 that have ran that playback two and three times. And so over the course of, you know, let's say 10 years, it's not out of the ordinary to probably build a million dollars of wealth, just living in properties, fixing them up, flipping them, and it's all tax-free. That's fantastic. And and I think I remember hearing this once. It's It doesn't even have to be two contiguous years, correct? I think yeah. it could be like, oh, I can live there for a year, move to an apartment in Colorado for a year, and then, you know, rent it out and then come back and then live in it for a year. And then I've got my two years total. Is that right? Well, that's, that's the best part because it's two out of the last five years, which means it, let's say year one and year two, I lived in it as my primary while I was getting it fixed up and, and renovated and stuff. Well, in year three, I can move out. Well, what can I do? I could turn it into a rental. So yeah. for years three, years three, four, and five, that can be a rental property that's generating some cash flow and income, boost the NOI up, and then sell it after, you know, sell it before year five's over 
completely tax-free. Meanwhile, years three and four, you just moved into another primary that you're fixing and flipping and you're trying to do the same exact thing. And you can, you know, if for somebody that's just getting started, that's really hands-on that wants to DIY, it's a great strategy to build wealth. Yeah, absolutely. That's incredible, man. Um, so yeah, then uh, kind of playing on the tax write-off side of things that Yoni was asking about. Um, I was curious, is there ever a time, because everybody always says like, and I, and like I live in, you know, farm country. So, you know, everybody at the end of the year, they're like, oh yeah, I'm going to, you know, buy a tractor because, you know, I need it for my tax write-offs and stuff like that. So is there ever a time where, you know, purchasing something, you know, taking money out of your pocket and purchasing it for write-off purposes is there ever a time to where like the juice isn't worth the squeeze like you know i'm not going to go out and purchase this you know hundred thousand dollar uh new truck because i can write it off against my business or is it always a good idea yeah so i think that definitely you have to understand what you just said is the juice worth the squeeze so what we say is don't let the tax tail wag the dog and so for, let me give you an example so if i use let's say my situation let's say i'm in a 40 percent tax bracket well, if I was to buy, you know, hire an employee or buy a truck for a business or do something, let's say the truck costs 50 grand. Well, if I can fully depreciate the truck, it's $50,000 times my 40% tax rate. So I'm saving $20,000 in cash in tax savings. Well, I might go finance the truck. So I'm only putting five or 10 grand down, but I just generated $20,000 in tax savings. Where it doesn't always work is lower income bracket size. Like if I'm that realtor that's just getting started or that self-employed person, if I buy that truck and write it off against my income, the bank is not going to allow me to add it back. And if I'm just starting off, odds are I'm in a lower tax bracket. So you and I could buy the same truck. Let's say but let's say we buy the $50,000 truck. I'm in a 40% tax bracket. You're only in a 12 or 22% tax bracket. I'm getting $20,000 of benefits compared to your maybe five or 6,000. Gotcha. Okay. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think we are uh, cruising through. I think we're getting close to like our 40-ish minute mark. So I think we're going to start moving into some of our uh, our closing questions. Unless uh, any any other uh, quick last remarks that you got, Ryan, before we move into those? No, I'm good. Okay. <laughs> all right. So uh, one, of, one of my favorite questions that I like to ask people right away is, you know, we, we all like, you know, numbers, we all like to hear about properties, stuff like that. So what's your favorite deal that you have done in the past? It, can, it doesn't have to be your most profitable or anything like that. But what's like your favorite deal? Whenever you think about it, you're just like, man, that one felt good. Yeah, that would be so far. I So I bought a property in Maryland. I bought it for 150. It appraised for 230 when I bought it. Wow. And the way I got this deal was a client of mine's a realtor over there. And she had a buyer that was under contract for this property that fell out uh, mm. for whatever reason. She And so we were just on our consulting call for like our tax strategy. And she goes, hey, I have this you know duplex that could be converted to a triplex with some about $30,000 of value add there. Do you know, you know, it appraised for 230, you know, seller, the seller didn't use an agent. They had no idea what it was worth. And that's how the buyer was able to get it for that price originally. She's like, do you know anybody that is interested in in this property? I was like, yeah, me. And so <laughs> I, we had that conversation on Monday or Tuesday. I told her, I said, hey, look, go to the seller and say, I'll give them 160 right now. Uh, I want it done by Friday. And so I had it under contract by Friday and then you know closed on the property, but literally $70,000 of instant equity add. And then um, by the time I put the 30 grand into it, the property was actually worth more than 300,000 bucks. Oh my gosh. How much did you have to put into it? 30, so I put 30 grand in. So all in was 250 okay. for it to praise at 300. Um, uh. The worst thing is though, is I, um, 
I probably should have sell, sold it just because, and this is something that I talk about in my, my podcast and like in my um, trainings and stuff is I had so much equity in there between the 70,000 that I instantly had, plus the other 40 or 50 that I generated with my repair money that if you, if you compared the amount of equity that I generated versus the amount of cash flow, you know, after burring it, after having now ha having a higher debt service, like it would take me, it was like 37 years. I'd have to rent the property out just to break even on the amount of equity spread that I had. Right. Oh, damn, and so yeah. you look at your portfolio and you take how much net equity do I have in the port in, in the property, divide that by the amount of net income that I'm making per year after all said and done. And you know, if that number is outrageous, it's, it's a good sign to sell it. I should have sold that property. Um, but at the time I kind of, and this is what's interesting is at the, I still identify myself as like a buy and hold guy. I've never sold anything that I've ever owned. Everything I've bought it, I've always, I've always held it. I haven't sold anything yet. But like, now yeah. knowing that it's like, you know, you want to have all these different types of tools in your back pocket. So it's, you know, I don't see myself as a wholesaler. I don't see myself as a fix and flipper, but it's like, if I would have just had that in my head of, okay, yeah, it's good to like, let something go. If it makes mathematical sense. I just always saw myself as a, you know, buy it, buy and hold forever type guy. But that those numbers there really made sense. I should have just sold the damn thing. But. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's something a lot of people don't talk about. And that starts getting a little bit, you know, once you get past the training wheels and you start, you know, accumulating some wealth, then you need to start. Everybody knows about cash on cash return. Everybody and their brother knows about that. But then not many people understand the return on equity. And I wish I could remember the number off the top of my head. I heard it on a podcast, but they were saying once you start getting past X amount of number. I can't remember what the percentage was there. Like you should start thinking about selling that property. Cause like you said, it would take you 37 years to make what that property is producing in the equity that you already had. And it's like, is it really worth that or sell it? You take the, you know, your X amount in profits, take that and put it as, you know, a 10% down on a vacation home loan that that property is now spitting out five grand a month in cash flow, And you've got a new asset. Then, you know, it, uh, you have to start, like you said, thinking, you know, multiple steps ahead. But not even, uh, it's not always even selling it, right? I, I just say repositioning. So whether oh, that's okay. take a loan out against it, go buy something new, use the new cash flow to pay off that loan, right? Or HELOC it and then buy something new or, you know, buy something new, 1031, whatever. But it's like, if, if, if your indicator is saying, hey, look, it would take me 30 years just to pay back what I have here in equity. How, how do I reposition myself to make sure that that payback period is now only five years compared to 30 years? And that's what we're looking for, you know, in a, in an investment is like, how quickly can I get my initial money out and like pay myself mm -hmm. back? And so for, you know, I have a lot of clients that are in the Smoky Mountains, Tennessee, that like they bought, you know, they bought cabins in 2018, 2019 for 300,000. Wow. Wow. Yeah, now they're worth like a million bucks, eight hundred, nine hundred thousand dollars And it's like, dude, you have $600,000 of forced equity here you're only making 30 grand on the property. You, you would have to rent out the cabin for 25 years just to break even on what you could walk away with. Well, now how do we, how do we exit that like tax efficiently knowing the market, right? Cause if, if the interest rates go up, well, Hey, look, you're going to have to discount your sale price. And if you, when you do go to sell it, you're going to have to buy at a higher debt service. So it's like all these different things that investors need to be thinking about that. You know, I try to walk clients through from a tax perspective, but then also just what does it mean in, you know, implication, right? Because something like that is literally going to triple the amount of debt that I have on my balance sheet, right? If I go from a three hundred thousand property to a nine hundred thousand dollar, say I take out a loan against a nine hundred k, like what does that do to my uh, net worth and my equity statement? So, uh, yeah, that's, that's um, 
So I, I was researching you before the podcast and you talk very publicly. Oh, about oh God. Yeah, yeah, no, I was, uh, no, I, I'm, I was very hyped about this going in. You talk a lot about um, very publicly many times about um, your experience in Big Four and how that inspired you to in your in your own entrepreneurial journey to to arm and educate and enable wealth for regular people to become wealthy. And I really that really resonated with me because Fetch It, the software, is for a lot of people largely to go from zero to one. So in, in a lot of ways, we are cousins. In our mission statement. So um, something that I was thinking about, I have my own, um, I would say people that I look up to in my little niche of software and things like this. What is what's somebody that you looked up to might be a role model, maybe an expert in your niche um, that really like is is your North Star and where you're headed? Um, because I obviously we are we are all influenced by those that came before us and maybe some that are ahead of us. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that because you are you are one of one on the Fetch It podcast right now. There's no other people of your caliber and there's no other CPA. So we'd love to hear um, CPAs and who also develop properties. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's very cool to me. Yeah, I, I would say my biggest mentor right now is uh, Bill Faith from Build Short Term Rental Wealth. So he's uh, he's actually the one that's putting on you know the, these big, large, eight hundred thousand person conferences. So he has. Uh, Online, you know, boot camps, Facebook group, 30,000 people in his uh, uh, Facebook group there. He's done, you know, multiple startups, $10 million exits on businesses. And he's really taught me how to define, like take my mission statement and define it. So that way it can really truly help everybody. And that's, that's being able to help somebody no matter where they're at, right? Whether they're zero to one or they're one to five, or they're trying to scale 12 and, you know, 10, 12 and up. And so that's why I've kind of retooled everything to say, well, hey, you know, I have the podcast, I have the social media content, I have the trainings and the boot camps and stuff. But then it's like, okay, once you're graduated and you do want to work one on one, well, here's what that looks like as far as the consulting goes. And it's just really being able to, you know, within, you know, a lot of times people will come up with questions and it's, I have to ask four or five questions before I'm able to answer your one question because I have to see where you're at as an individual. And that's, that's the best thing for any good, you know, mentor or advisor is to, just ask questions and get to know that person before you give them a response. Because if you just straight to the point, give them a response, you're not factoring in all the, all the, what could go wrong, like everything. A lot of times people will come to me with a tax question, but it's really, Hey, that's actually an entity structuring question, or that's a lending question or a banking question, you know, things that they don't even think are problems because they have blinders on. I'm able to kind of open that up. And so it, he's been really helpful in kind of showing me how to, address that and show my mission to other people. I would say as far as other people that have inspired me, um, I think, you know, athletes, some, some certain athletes, you know, I think Kobe Bryant kind of inspired me with just like his work ethic. No you know, way. Mentality. Yeah. Dude. That's Yoni's guy. Yeah. That's... Kobe, Kobe's huge. Um, I've like, I've had every single pair. Well, I used to have every single pair of his, every single, you know, from like four on up, I had every single Kobe shoe and, just his work ethic. Right off? Not for me, no. <laughs> I used to have like the I used to have the Grinches, the BHMs. I used to have like all the Kobe's, man. I'm a I, I have awesome. a I have a Mamba um I have a Mamba playlist on my YouTube that has basically accumulated like 50 plus videos that I listen to when I work out. All you know Kobe interviews with obviously nice music in the background, but like his philosophy on life, his philosophy on work. 
his mentality going into certain games, the Achilles injury. Like when he died, you know, that really messed me. I'll never forget where I was. I um, I get pissed at ESPN for leaving him out of the GOAT conversation. So I, I love that you said that, that, that nobody's ever said Kobe before on the pods. Yeah. So just make really okay. He's, he's like a, a legitimate psychopath in the best way. I mean, he's, he's a savage. Love it. Love it. Um, okay. Next one. Do you have any sort of daily habits that you think have helped you excel to the level that you're at things that you do on a daily basis or, uh, you know, um, atomic habits, like habit stacking, anything like that? Yeah. So the, I actually read Stephen Covey's seven habits, highly effective people. So it was like atomic habits before atomic habits kind of. Uh, okay. the second, the second one there is begin with the end in mind. Mm. And so that's a common trend you'll see. And what I talk about is before you go to do something, you want to think it full circle, right? So just, don't just start where you're at, at, at level one, but Hey, what is it, what is this going to look like once I achieve level 10, right? Once I get this loan, what does that do to my, you know, my, my PFS, what does that do to my overall situation? As far as a daily habit, I think the best thing that I do is actually the night before. So the night before I'll, I'll write out like all the shit that I want to accomplish the next day on a list. And this is what's so powerful because I try to, I used to have it online or on my phone or like an app, but just writing it out and just checking, like crossing stuff off your to-do list is so much more powerful. So my daily routine actually starts the night before, you know, that Sunday before that work week, it's like writing out all the shit that I want to accomplish that week. I think that's super powerful, you know, because nobody, nobody ever plans to fail. Right. But the people that don't plan might fail or will fail, you know, nobody, Mm -hmm. nobody, nobody plans to be. 40, 50 years old, fat and broke, right? It just, it happens because they didn't have a plan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I used to write stuff down. I tried Brandon Turner's, Brandon Turner's intention journal that he has. You know, I tried a lot of those things. It just didn't click with me. And then uh, I saw Cody Sanchez mention that she bought a dry erase board, just a big ass dry erase board that she keeps yeah, in her in office. Other room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I put it right behind my computer. I write in big old letters, like what I'm wanting to do that day. And every time I look up from my computer, I see it. And I'm just like that, that right there, like staring at it helps me so much. So that, that's, that's the war, that's the cool, war room board right there. Yeah. That's <laughs> all right go ahead yoni you're you're a fascinating guy ryan so obviously i'm gonna geek out after that you said kobe bryant and i can't stop mentioning it of course um but i'm a big reader and a lot of people that listen are either big readers and or trying to get into reading is there anything that you would recommend uh our audience readers is there a book that sticks out in your mind that was uh, integral in who you are now as a person yeah, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is huge. Uh, some of the other books that I've that I've enjoyed reading, um, obviously, there's the the real estate books. Another book that I would say two other books that had a massive impact on my my career. The one being a, um, a book called The Power of Habit by a guy named Charles Duhigg, and so it's just another habit book. But what it actually teaches is like, why do we have these habits? So let's say you're a smoker, alcoholic, whatever you know, bad habits that we think, because all habits, you know, habits are habits. There's just some that we think that are, oh, those are bad habits. Like he's a drinker, he's a smoker, or he's a gambler, whatever. But then there's also like, you could also have good habits, right? So you could be, you know, you could eat healthy, you could, you know, exercise every day. So what's the difference there between like a bad habit and a good habit? It all starts with the trigger. So typically in any sort of like habit cycle, this is what the book talks about. There's a trigger there's an action and then there's the reward of, of what do you get after you complete that cycle? So for a smoker, they get that nicotine itch and then the action is actually the smoke. And then that reward is like, they feel good. So the guy talks about, well, if you want to correct that, 
you know, what you have to do is once you get the trigger, you have to change the action. So you, so, you know, for example, instead of somebody getting the urge to go smoke in it, so they go to the garage to smoke, well, maybe they'll put a puzzle or they'll put something in between them, or maybe, maybe they go to the fridge or grab a can of diet Coke that solves, or that tries to help that trigger and, and produce a different reward. So all you're doing is revamping your habit cycle. Um, the, the book is so good. One of the, one of the paragraphs, they talk about the guy who developed the early 2000s target marketing. So mm-hmm. back in the you know early 2000s, like Target had like the flyers that they would send to your house that would have, you know, whatever you were interested in. And you're like, how the hell do they know like what I want to buy? Well, Target had like their coupon that they, or their um, little card that you would scan to get you points when you checked out. Well, the guy at Target, he was like, what is the highest profile customer where if we can really grab these people, we'll make a boatload of money. And he found out that it was actually pregnant women. So he, he found out that if, if they could get pregnant women to come shop at Target and only use Target, they could get a lifetime of customers because that woman is going to shop for all of her baby stuff and her formula and her cribs at Target. And so she's also probably going to pick up groceries from Target. And then when the kids grow up, like she's only going to go to Target for everything. And then the kids are going to start going to Target, whatever, right? So this guy was so good at this. So then they started, you know, advertising flyers and stuff, baby formula, you know, stuff to, to pregnant women. Well, one time what happened was is the the dad of like a 17 year old girl got a flyer in the mail with the girl's name on it. And it said, it, it showed like baby formula, strollers and stuff like that. And the guy, he went to like the regular target. He, you know, complained, cussed them out, went to the regional target. He, he went all the way up. till he finally met the guy like face to face who created this system. And he goes, he goes, why, you know, why are you doing this? And why is this targeted towards my daughter? She's not pregnant. Well, three months later, the guys uh, found out that his daughter was actually pregnant. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. So That's awesome. It, it, that, and so that book kind of taught me a lot of like, what are triggers to people's habits? And so what, like, why do people act a certain way? You'll, you'll, you'll get a lot of, out of that book. That's awesome. Anyway. Very interesting. Cause yeah, yeah, you can, you can start to uh, reward yourself for things that you're wanting to get in. Like if I want to start being, you know, if I want to start working out every day, then I need to put some sort of a trigger in front of me that makes me, it prompts me to do that. That's very interesting. Dangle that cheese, man. Just like that you carrot, like you, like the, you know, the carrot. Or like when uh, when the when the dogs race around the track, they have like the little bird or the little rabbit that goes around. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, okay, another question we like to ask is, uh, what is a challenge that you're currently experiencing in your business, and how could our Fetch It listeners possibly help? Yeah, I think I think the biggest problem is like delegating tasks and being able to trust other people to do what you've done because you know nobody's going to work as hard and nobody's going to care about your stuff as much as you but one of the things another book another good book that's good to read is what's called genius zone and Mm -hmm. so genius zone and talks about like there's four different quadrants of any activity that you do and you want to spend all your time in your genius zone like what are you top 10 percent at in the world or top one percent at so for me that's like consulting and strategizing and talking with people that's my top one percent so i want to be able to focus 90 percent of my time in that genius zone but I have to be able to delegate out the other three quadrants of stuff that I don't want to do. And that's the biggest challenge for me right now. Very interesting. Okay. Great. That's, that's great. I, 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 th- there's a few things that you said on this podcast that um, really stuck out to me. Um, we usually finish out the podcast where um, Ryan, if you would be so kind tell everybody where they can reach you and uh, all the different ways that they can reach you, because I think you have subject matter expertise that a lot of people need. Yeah. So you can find me on all social media platforms. It's going to be at learn like a CPA. So that'll be Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. You can even find me on LinkedIn, my full name. 
Find me on Facebook. It's going to be Tax Strategies for Real Estate Investors on Facebook. Uh, we've got 5,000 investors in that group. And then my podcast is going to be The Learn Like a CPA Show, wherever podcasts are. That's awesome. I wrote down the Facebook group because I think I'm going to come join because that sounds fantastic. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um. Okay, uh, Yoni, I think that is that was like a whirlwind masterclass on tax strategies and uh, also... I got about five book recommendations down now that I'm going to have to try and go out and get. Um, Yoni, anything else you can think of before we get out of here? Um, I, I think you're awesome, Ryan. And we're going to have to have you again because uh, as, as, as That's I was what saying, everybody says, yeah, yeah we're going to have to have <laughs> you back because just selfishly for myself, as I look to accumulate wealth more through the, through fetch it and through, real estate development, I'm going to want to preserve that wealth. And I think a lot of people that are hustling out there need to preserve and you have all the requisite knowledge on how to preserve. So if you want to learn how to preserve wealth, everybody listen. I hope you listen to this multiple times. Amen. Thank you guys. Awesome. All right. Thanks a lot, Ryan. Appreciate you coming on. It's been another episode of the Fetch and Podcast. See you later, everybody. <laughs>